Let's open our Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 9. The book of Romans chapter 9. Before we read in verse 1, let me just say for a background of these two chapters, and we've already been given an indication of the need for this background all through the previous chapters or through many of the chapters, and that is that God has given two covenants. He gave a covenant of grace, first of all, to Abraham before the law ever entered. And remember, Abraham was a man of faith, and he did not have to attain unto the righteousness of the law in order to be justified in the sight of God. The Bible says that Abraham believed God, and it was accounted, imputed, reckoned to him for righteousness. So we had a covenant of grace. And then when Moses came along and God gave the law to the children of Israel, it was a covenant of works. And God said, if you'll do thus and so, I will do thus and so. In other words, as they did in obedience to the law, God's rewards and God's blessings was uh, upon them in respect to their obedience to the law. So there was a covenant of works, but this covenant of works was never intended to justify them in the sight of God so that they would be declared righteous in His sight, but only that they would be obedient to the commands that God had given them. And of course, the law, the Bible says, was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, to help us to see that we could not attain unto righteousness through it, but we would have to attain unto the righteousness of God by grace. And by grace we're saved, and then by grace he imputes Christ's righteousness unto us. This will serve as a background for what we'll find at least in the next three chapters, chapter 9, 10, and 11 of Romans. Now then, let's take it up verse by verse as we look in chapter 9, verse 1. I say the truth in Christ, Paul says, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. Paul speaks of his inward feelings, his consciousness, his conscience, but he says it bears him witness with the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit is also in agreement of what Paul is about to say concerning his inward feelings. He says in verse 2, that I have great sorrow, that I have great heaviness, I beg your pardon, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ. That means that he would be separated willingly from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now then, Paul's personal heartbreak is spoken of here. His heartbreak for his brethren according to the flesh, for Israel. He said, I could even wish that myself were separated from Christ if it would but mean their salvation. I could wish myself a curse from Christ. My great heaviness and continual sorrow is in my heart. Paul had great compassion for his brethren according to the flesh. He knew that they were uh, his brethren. He knew that they were God's chosen people. He knew that uh, they had many privileges and blessings that the Gentiles did not have. We'll name eight of them, beginning with verse 4 of their special blessings. But he knew also that they were trying to attain righteousness and salvation by works instead of by grace. And that's why it broke his heart. 
He wanted them to realize that they couldn't be saved by the law. Because he had always thought that he could have been saved by the law. And he found out, though he kept the law, and he said uh, concerning his zeal that he was persecuting the church, as, uh, as far as the law is concerning, touching the law, he said that he was righteous, that he had kept the law. He spoke of his adherence to the law, and yet he realized that all this, he says, I count this but dumb, that I may win Christ and be found in him not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law. He realized he couldn't attain righteousness in that way. So therefore his heart was heavy for his brethren, who were on their way to perishing, on their way to trying to be justified by works instead of being saved by grace. And that's what Paul was concerned about. You know, there were many men in the Bible that had great heartbreak for their people and nation and uh, their fellow man during the period of time in which they lived. For instance, can you imagine Enoch? Enoch walking with God in the midst of a, a wicked world. All, wickedness all about him. Remember, Enoch is a contemporary with Noah. And, of course, the Bible tells us that in Noah's day there was wickedness in the earth, great wickedness, and God said, I will destroy man because of this wickedness and his sin, and he agreed to save Noah and his family by grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But Enoch walked with God during days like that. And I cannot imagine him walking with God and not having a feeling of compassion for those that were on the wrong road. And so I'm sure that Enoch had a personal heartbreak for uh, the whole world in his day, and, they, and that he had compassion and concern. And what about Noah? Noah preached for 120 years to those people that were steeped in sin and in wickedness. And the Bible says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He wanted them to be right with God. And they could not be right with God if they remained unrepentant and rebellious and sinful and did not repent of their sins and turn to God. And they would have found grace in the eyes of the Lord had they done so. They would have been saved by grace, just as Noah was. And so I'm sure that Noah had great concern for them. And what about Abraham? Remember Abraham when old Lot was down in, Lot and his family down in Sodom? And God became concerned about all those uh, righteous people that he thought were living there. And they come to find out there wasn't very many, was Very few. And old Abraham prayed and he uh, prayed concerning, he said, Lord, if you find 50 righteous, will you spare the city for their sakes? God agreed that he would. And Abraham prayed again, 45, 40, 35, 30, right on down. Ten. You know, there wasn't even ten. And Lot was far from being what he should have been, but the Bible does say he was a righteous man inwardly. But he was backslidden and away from God. He was living amongst those people and going along with them in many of the things that they did, even though inside his righteous soul <coughs> was vexed from day to day, the Bible says, by their unlawful deeds. You know, you and I become permissive in a lot of things that we do not agree with, and yet instead of just being permissive, we ought to speak out against it and say it's a sin in the sight of God. And that's where Lot was not the testimony that he should have been. And so we ought to speak up. Sin is sin in the sight of God. And he should have took, uh, taken his stand, but he did not. But we know that 
that uh, Abraham then at that particular time had great continual sorrow. What about Moses when the children of Israel sinned? Even after they were being led of God through the wilderness. And Moses said, Blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book. For their sakes, he was willing to put himself on the line for the sake of the children of Israel. What about Isaiah? He said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He was concerned about them. Nehemiah prayed day and night, he said, and forgive the sin, the trespass of the children of Israel, because you promised, Lord, that if, if they do repent and turn back to you, that you will deliver them, that you will have compassion on them, you will forgive their iniquity. What about Jesus when he looked out upon Jerusalem and he saw all of the wickedness and he knew the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and he knew even the chief priests and the scribes had rejected him. And he knew the sin that existed and he knew the rebellion and he knew the unbelief. And he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, but ye would not. He says, Behold! Your house is left unto you desolate. So he had compassion and concern, and it broke his heart. Paul says, I have great uh, sorrow, great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. You and I today ought to have equal sorrow, or at least we ought to have a bit of the same message that we're bringing to you for our brethren, for our community, for the people round about us that that maybe uh, are on the wrong way and our desire should be that they be put on the right way. And that way is what? Christ. He is the way. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There are many people just like Israel was, trying to justify uh, themselves in the sight of God by works. And we have many people today that are going about establishing their own righteousness and thinking that they can get to heaven and that they're just as good as they need be in the sight of God because they're, they're, they have their good works to show or their honesty or whatever they want to count on or they live by the Ten Commandments or they keep the golden rule, they think. And they do not because the Bible tells us that it was not possible that man be saved in that way. And yet we have multitudes round about us and we have people all round about us in the community that believe that that's exactly the way that they're going to get to heaven. And the Bible teaches that it's contrary to the doctrines of grace, that salvation is by grace and by faith alone, that they cannot be saved by works. You talk to the average person, you ask him what it is. What he bases his uh, assurance of heaven upon. He'll say, well, I'm honest. He'll say, well, uh, I go to church once in a while. I send the wife and kids, at least. Uh, I don't beat my wife. Uh, I pay my honest debts. Uh, I try to be a good citizen of the community. You, you see, men have all kinds of ideas as to where, where they stand eternally before God as to how they compare themselves one with another. But the Bible teaches that we need to be concerned about those kind of people. For Paul said, I could uh, wish myself a curse separated from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. If they would just but be saved, I could wish myself were separated from Christ. We know that Paul didn't want to be eternally separated from God. But that's how sorrowful and how heavy 
and how concerned he was for people that were on the wrong road. And his brethren, his physical, fleshly brethren, or we should say uh, national brethren, it'd be more direct because they were his brethren as Israelites, as, as uh, the nation of Israel. But now let's look. He goes on to say, who are Israelites? And he names eight different things wherein they have privileges, these Jews, above the Gentiles. Notice these eight things. To whom pertaineth the adoption, that's first of all, and the glory, and the covenant, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises, verse 5, whose are the fathers, and look, and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came. Eight different special privileges and blessings for the Jewish people. If anyone ought to have been thankful for grace, it should have been the Israelites. Because all of these privileges they had enjoyed, and yet they were still trying to be justified by works instead of by grace through faith, and still refusing Christ as their Savior. And they are today as a nation and as a people. Not individually, there are some being saved. We thank the Lord for that. But the multitudes do not of the Jewish people today accept Jesus as Savior, Messiah, their promised Messiah. He's only classified as a prophet among others, as a good man, a good example. But not as the promised one to be born of the Virgin Mary, to be the Messiah, the Son of God. And he's not accepted as such. But they should have been especially grateful. But it says in verse 6, not as though the word of God had taken none effect. Well, we didn't read the rest of verse 5. It says, Of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. Not as though the word of God had taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither because they are uh, the seed of Abraham are they the, all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Let's read verse 8. That is... They which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of promise are counted for the seed. Now we have the Jews, the natural seed of Abraham. There's the natural seed of Abraham, and then there's that spiritual seed of Abraham. And not all of them were spiritual. That's what Paul is saying here. He says in verse 7, Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all the children. They're not children unless they're children by faith. And the bulk of them were children uh, because they were the seed of Abraham. They thought that was sufficient. Just as in the Gospels you find that God is able of these seed to raise up children unto Abraham. God could raise up spiritual children. And yet those that said, we have Abraham to our father, we're children of God. We're children of uh, God because we're the natural seed of Abraham. That didn't make them the spiritual seed of Abraham in Jesus' day. Neither did it in Paul's day, and it does not today. In other words, the change has to take place. It has to be a spiritual relationship and not a physical or national relationship. And a lot of people today, the Jews, they claim that they, they're all right. They think everything's okay because they're Jews. A lot of people today think they're all right because they were raised in a Christian home or a Christian nation. A lot of people are so broad in their thinking about uh, uh, being good people 
that they say, well, I'm raised in America, and so that makes everything all right. It's a Christian nation, and I live in a Christian nation, therefore, well, everything's okay. That is getting broad, isn't it? Some people say, well, because I'm, I'm good, because I do the best I can, I'm a good citizen. That makes everything okay. Others say, well, I keep the law. I try to live by the law. I believe it's wrong to murder and to steal and to, and to uh, do the things that the law forbids. But what about having other gods before God? The first commandment and the greatest of all of them is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. So they might claim to not steal and not murder and not uh, uh, do some of the things that are written in man's relationship to man as far as breaking the law is concerned, but they've broken that first and greatest commandment, which is their duty to God. And they have other gods. But you see, it's the spiritual seed that matters, whether it's Jews or Gentiles, or whether it's people of our day and age that are trying to be justified by works, it's still the spiritual relationship that matters above all. In verse 9, it says, For this is the word of promise. God's word is a word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, let's stop about Sarah first, and then we'll continue with Isaac. First of all, Sarah was going to have a son of promise. And in Isaac, the Bible says, shall thy seed be called. For he was the son of promise. And God made it very specific that in Isaac his seed would be called. But look in verse 10, and not only this, but when Rebekah also conceived by one, even by her father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, still faith, isn't it? Not of works, but of him that calleth. Paul is teaching us the great lesson of the sovereignty of God and salvation by grace through faith instead of by works. The pur purpose of God would stand, but not of works, but of, of him that calleth. It, it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. This was the exception to the rule. Because usually the younger served the elder. But God says, I'm going to make exception because I want you to see that it's by grace and it's by the purpose of God. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. This is just another example of God's uh, divine sovereignty. God's sovereign grace. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God is a God of mercy. God is a God of compassion. But God is a sovereign God, too. It says in verse 16, So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. The key word here is mercy and compassion. For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. He raised Pharaoh up. Pharaoh was a wicked man. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh sinned against God. Pharaoh was rebellious. Pharaoh would not repent. And God would bring him to a place where he would cry out to Moses and he would say, I have sinned against the Lord. And he said, Moses, remove the plagues. 
Moses would pray and intercede to God. God would remove the plagues and the judgments. And then the Bible says, Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. Then finally it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God was going to make him then an example of the fact that being so rebellious and sinful that he would show his power in delivering the children of Israel from under his yoke and under his hand. In verse 18, Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Now, if you'll notice, if you go back and read concerning Pharaoh, God did not harden Pharaoh's heart until Pharaoh had hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his own heart first. And God was saying, Pharaoh, if you will not repent, if you will not turn, if you will not believe, then just become harder. And that's the way the sinner is today many times. The Word of God goes out and he sins against God. He will not turn to God. The Bible says, He that being often reproved and hardeneth his heart shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. He's often reproved. The Word of God comes. The mercy of God. The compassion of God. And finally it's so rejected and so rejected until the person's heart becomes hard against God. And whom he will, he hardeneth. Verse 19, Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? In other words, the problem here with some in understanding this says, Well, if God hardens his heart, then why does God find fault with him? Because of the fact that he has already hardened his heart. But regardless of whether we understand it or not, we have no right to reply against God. You see, God knows the condition of every individual. God is sovereign in his grace and in his actions and in his purpose. And it says in verse 20, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Can you answer or dispute with God? Can you, can you reply against God and say, God, you're wrong in doing this? If we cannot do that, then we have no reason to question his dealings. Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? If you make something... Do you ask that thing that you're making if, it's, if, if it pleases that particular thing? Hath not the power, uh, the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel into honor and another into dishonor? Doesn't he have power to do that? Say you're the potter. You go out here and you're making, you're making the pot out of clay. You have the power to make it as you will, as you desire. As it pleases you, you're, in a sense, sovereign of that creation. God is of us. God is the potter and we are the clay. But I want you to notice something about mercy and compassion and long-suffering that you'll find in verse 22. That's the secret of it all in understanding how God deals. What if God, what if God, willing to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. But notice that he endured with much long-suffering. You see, God has compassion on all, but those that refuse him and are vessels of wrath, they are fitted to destruction. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. Some find mercy, which he hath afore prepared unto glory. So that it's the sovereign grace of God that enters the picture. And God extends His mercy and His compassion. Men either receive Him or reject Him. 
And the Jews had rejected. And they were trying to be saved by a covenant of works, which was impossible. And he's showing how that they had miserably failed to be saved. We'll read on down in the last five or six verses of this chapter how that they could not attain by the way that they wanted to be saved. They would not submit to God's sovereign grace, and therefore they could not attain unto God's righteousness. But look at verse 23 before we get down that far. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called. Not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. The ones that he is called by his grace, the one that have been saved by grace through faith, not just merely of the Jews, but also of the Gentiles. He's made known his, uh, his riches and the riches of his glory on these vessels of mercy. You and I and everyone that's received Christ and have been saved by grace, whether Jews or Gentiles, are vessels of mercy. God has been merciful unto us. Paul tells us in the book of Titus that God, uh, who is rich in mercy, listen carefully, it says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. So it's his mercy that's extended to all that he's called, whether they're Jews or Gentiles. And they're saved by faith. In verse 25, he cites Hosea, the prophet. It says, O.C. here which is the equivalent of Hosea of the Old Testament. And he saith also in Osi, I will call them my people which were not my people, and her beloved, beloved which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, You are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. He says this in relationship to the Gentiles, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles. Hosea prophesied of the fact that Gentiles who were not by God's choice of a nation and a people, children of God, they were called by His grace and they shall be called the children of the living God. And then he says Isaiah. He speaks of Isaiah the prophet. He says also Christ concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. Some of those of the Jews will be saved by grace. And it says in verse 28, For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. He's going to save a remnant of the Jews, and they will be saved by grace through faith and not by the works of the law. In verse 29, And as Esaias said before, Except the Lord of Seboeth had left us a seed, we had been as Sodom and been made like unto Gomorrah. In other words, if God had not saved of the Jews and of the Gentiles, had not saved some of those upon whom His mercy was extended, had not saved some of them by grace through faith, then they would have been as Sodom and Gomorrah. There would have been complete destruction. Now then, verses 30 through 33 explain some of what we've been trying to teach concerning these two covenants of law and of grace. What shall we Say then, that the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness, they didn't follow after the righteousness of the law and try to be saved by the work, uh, covenant of works, that the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained unto righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. 
So you have on the one hand Gentiles that did not seek to be justified by the works of the law and by that covenant of works, that they attained unto that which the Jews sought. They attained unto righteousness because they did not seek it by works, but by faith, even the righteousness which is of faith. But on the other hand, look at verse 31. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, they said, oh, we're going to be saved by keeping the law. We're going to be saved by this covenant of works. They could not humble themselves to, to realize that they needed to be saved by grace through faith. We're going to uh, adhere strictly to the law, and God will justify us on the basis of our works. We will be right and righteous in the sight of God. But it says they have not attained to the law of righteousness. You know why they didn't attain to the law of righteousness? Verse 32 says, because they sought it not by faith. They were seeking it by works, weren't they? Yeah, the same thing, even though we speak of Jews and Gentiles. We have the same principle that's true today of people. You have some trying to be saved by works. And they think they can attain unto righteousness by works. Now, works doesn't especially mean going out and doing all the good you can do in the world. Works means that you try to do what you think God demands of you that's necessary to meet his righteous standard. Works has to do with the fact that you might think, well, I've, I'm living according to the law. I'm keeping the commandments. I'm doing the, the very right thing in the sight of God. I'm doing everything that God expects of me. And you might have that attitude, and still you're trying to be saved by works. But you must realize that you cannot attain unto the righteousness of God that way. The Jews could not. The Gentiles did not try to, though we have many Gentiles and Jews today that try to. We have many people all over today that are trying to, don't we? All over the country and in our community that say, well, I'm going to be saved by works. And it's not an outlandish effort to do good works, but it's merely trying to justify themselves on the basis of being right with God and meeting all of his principles and everything that God requires. I've done all that the Lord wants me to do. I'm doing it just like he wants me to do it, and therefore I'll be good enough to enter heaven. No, you won't, because the righteousness of God is by faith. And the Bible says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth, and the believer is justified by faith. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. We're not justified by the law. The law could not save us for what the law could not do, and it was weak through the flesh. Cursed is every man that continueth not in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. No one has kept the law to perfection but Jesus Christ. And you and I are perfectly saved and safe and righteous in Christ because he's fulfilled every righteous demand of God and you and I are made free from the condemnation of the law and we walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith and we do not have to try to be justified by works. Israel's, Israel's failure, the Jews' failure, is pointed out in verse 32. Wherefore, why did they not attain unto the righteousness of the law? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. You see, they didn't seek it by faith. That's the reason. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. Who is that stumbling stone? Christ. They had the promise that Christ would come and that it would take faith in him. 
as it is written, verse 33, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed, confounded, or confused. Because he's the way of faith. And the scriptures before and of old had prophesied that Christ would be the one that would be a stumbling stone to Israel. Because they could not get away from the fact that they had to be justified by the works of the law. They could not realize that this one upon whom they were to believe would save them by faith. And this was their problem. And Paul says in Romans 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. That they might personally, individually, out of that nation that claimed to be children of God because of Abraham. They were the seed of Abraham. That out of that people that there would be individuals that would be saved by grace through faith. Paul could have been concerned for the whole nation to be saved in a day. Though I believe that the individual matter is what he's really praying for. That some of them surely would be saved. He would like for all of them to be. But he goes on in verse 2 and says, For I bear them record. I know what I'm talking about. That they, he not only knew what he was talking about as far as the law and, and grace was concerned, but Paul knew what he was talking about as far as being one with them because he himself personally had tried to be justified by the works of the law. He says, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. They're zealous. They have a zeal for God, but they do not realize that it's not according to knowledge. It's not according to the grace of God and, by, and salvation by grace through faith. Paul had a zeal for God too, didn't he? And he went about thinking he was doing right as he persecuted Christians. And he met the Lord on the road to Damascus. And he surrendered. He said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And of course, when he surrendered, he surrendered to preach the gospel of grace. And he denounced everything that tried to be a means of his justification beforehand. And he said, now if I'm going to be saved and justified in the sight of God, it has to be by faith. And he said, I'm going to count all these things that I've tried to do as but dumb, that I may win Christ and be found in him. Not having my own righteousness, which is of the law. I thought I could be saved that way, but I found out I could not. But that which is of faith. So they had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Verse 3 says, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Look at that. Look at that quickly. They are ignorant, Paul says, of God's righteousness. They are ignorant of the fact that the real righteousness of God is given to us by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that the one that believes on Christ, God declares him righteous and gives him Christ's righteousness in the third chapter of the book of Romans. The righteousness of God, which is by faith. But they still go about establishing, trying to establish their own righteousness. They go about trying to say that, well, now we're righteous because we keep the commandments. We live by the law. And they have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. I believe this is the problem today, whether it's Jews or Gentiles or whoever. 
The problem with men in their sinful condition is that they go about trying to establish their own righteousness. It was especially true of the Jews because they had been given the law, right? They had all of these special eight blessings that we pointed out in the previous chapter, beginning with verse 4 of the ninth chapter, verses 4 and 5. Eight special privileges. And they had all the advantage. And especially of them, they were going about to establish their own righteousness. And people today are following the same pattern, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. People are going about trying to establish their own righteousness. And thus, as a result, they have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. They have not surrendered to the fact that we have broken God's law. Submission. Look at this. You know what you do when you believe on Christ as your own personal Savior? You say, I'm a sinner. I've sinned and come short of the glory of God. God's law is, is so holy and right that I'm so far short and I'm under its condemnation and I cannot attain unto righteousness this way. And God has provided for me salvation in Christ. And I'm going to accept Him and be saved regardless of whether I'm good or bad or even mediocre. I'm going to be saved through faith, by faith in Christ. And once I accept Him, then we find the truth comes out that God has given us Christ's righteousness, substituted to us, and accounted us righteous. And that which we were trying to attain by our, our own righteousness... And establish our own righteousness, we find we didn't even need in the first place that Christ had it all for us by faith in Him. You know, you're just as righteous in the sight of God as if you kept every commandment that God ever gave in Christ. You're just as righteous in the sight of God as if you had never sinned against the glory of God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but you're just as righteous in the sight of God as a believer, as if you had never committed any of those things, as if you had fully kept all of the law of God, as if there was nothing ever could be laid to your charge as a sin in the sight of God. That's where you stand. But how do you stand there? You stand there by faith in Jesus Christ. Someone says, how do you stand before God? You know how you stand as a believer? As a born-again child of God, as one who's justified by faith, you stand perfectly pure, perfectly holy, perfectly cleansed and washed. The guilt of sin has been removed. God has accepted you in the Beloved. You're declared to be righteous in God's sight, just as righteous as Christ is righteous in the sight of God. That's justification by faith, and that's the privilege and the blessing that every believer, true believer, enjoys today. Let us let that be our lesson for tonight, and we'll pick up with verse 4 with our next lesson of the 10th chapter of the book of Romans.